Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners and welcome to Radio Astronomy's Guide to the Best Things to See in the Night Sky of the Northern Hemisphere in October 2021. I'm Ezzie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by Reviews Editor Paul Money, who is going to be telling us his best sights to see in this month's sky. So, Paul, what are your recommendations for October 2021? Hi, Ezzie. Well, now we've got darker skies, we're starting to see a lot more events. Although it has to be said, there's still quite a few in the twilight conditions, uh, usually down to the moon and things like Venus. But you know what? It's funny because last month we started off with an occultation and we're starting off with an occultation again this month, (laughs) you know. Um, But I mean, they're fascinating because they do give us, we've mentioned this before, it gives us uh, an idea of the workings, the clockwork workings of the solar system. And I still get fascinated by watching the moon um, pass in front of a star and obliterate. I mean, it's amazing now to see the star just disappear. It's an instant. You know, Mm. it's not a gradual. If it was a planet, you can see it gradually disappear, but it's an instant. And it really tells you the stars are a long way off and they're a pinpoint. So we've got a a reasonably well-known star in actual fact, and its position is ideal because it's in the sickle of Leo. And this is Eta Leonis on October the 3rd sort of thing. You need to be looking, I'm afraid, sorry, it's a morning object. Yes, we've got to set our alarms, haven't we, to see it. So you want to be looking around about 4am onwards because northern parts of England and all of Scotland will actually see a very close miss so they don't mm. see the occultation. It's more for the uh, England and sort of like South actually gets the occultation. But uh, anybody who is actually on the what we call the Greys line will see a fascinating sight because what you see is the, the star dipping in and out of the mountains and valleys of the moon, on the limb of the moon. Ooh. And I've done that a couple of times sort of thing. They, they really are difficult to observe. But uh, the accuracy now of lunar occultation predictions is such that it's become better to see them, easier to see them, and to work out the track. So, uh, you know, and it is quite something to see the star just, just flicker. It just flickers because it, it disappears behind a mountain peak, then reappears, then disappears, and reappears. And, and sometimes it can be a very brief period. If it's really at the base of the mountains and there's some deep valleys, then you get a longer period sort of thing where, you know, you catch them. When I say longer period, I'm talking about tens of seconds at most. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about sort of several minutes this takes. It, it's several seconds. It's, so it's a blink parts, rather than a flash. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is a blink. You're right. So, uh, you know, we want to be looking in, in the morning, I always like to start well in advance because it's nice to watch the moon gradually creep up against the star, towards mm-hmm. the star. So this is Eta Leonis, and it's above. It's north of Regulus. I mean, Regulus is the heart of the lion, uh, Leo the lion there. So uh, it's nice always when there's a, a crescent moon above Regulus anyway. Let's say we've got the bonus of this occultation. And so really it depends on where you are as to whether you see a miss, a graze, or an actual occultation. Because it's on the northern limb of the moon, it will be a relatively short occultation. But I always say, give yourself plenty of time and just keep watching. Um, mm. Or, or if, you want, if you're into imaging sort of thing, just leave the camera rolling. <laughs> Video <laughs> it and sort of thing, and then watch it at your leisure afterwards. But I do think they're fascinating events. And I say, it's just a shame it's in the morning sky. But uh, that's, you know, that's part of astronomy, isn't it? Sort of thing. Yeah, we can't, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> we, Sometimes we can't. <laughs> just have 
have to get up in the morning. Exactly, sort of thing, you know. So, uh, and hope that it isn't. It, it isn't reasonably. It's it's fairly high up, so it's not too low. Because sometimes these events for me, they happen so low, I, I can't see them because of things in the way, you know. So, so uh, I've got an industrial estate, and sort of, a, I've got a shrub-filled mm-hmm. bun, which is very good for hiding the industrial estate. But it does mean things have got to rise high enough before they clear the uh, the bund, as we call it, or the bank. So that's October the 3rd then. We start off with this occultation and I say, well, worth having a look at. And I say, it is a fascinating thing to see these stars either disappear in the occultation or if you're right on that graze limit sort of thing, it's amazing to see it flickering or as you say, blinking in and out sort of thing of the valleys, you know, and it sort Mm. of gives you a sense of, they used to use these as a way of mapping the lunar limb when we had no, you know, this this was before oh. they had orbiters and whatnot. It was a way of mapping the lunar limb and the, the features on the edge of the moon sort of thing. And, of course, it would change because of the libration of the moon as well. So you always got a different result. Libration being the uh, wobble of the moon. It's slightly out of sync with its orbit and the orbital period. And, yeah, so uh, basically it does wobble a little bit sort of things. So, ironically, you know, we say 50% of the moon is illuminated. Well, you actually get to see, I think, it's about 58% of the mm. moon technically. Uh, over the course of uh, the the, the not wobble. all at the same time. <laughs> no, exactly. It's always 50% at, at any one moment, but we say slightly different. And that, you know, helps with things like observing Mare Oriental, which is right on the limb. And sometimes we see it better than others. Sometimes it's virtually really is difficult to see it. And other times you, you get a hint of this ring-like structure. I mean, it had been amazing if that had been facing us. I mean, that would have been a something. But again, lunar limb occultations like this, sort of, the grazing occultations, tell us a lot about these limb structures in the past but now of course we're spoiled we've got orbiters haven't we (laughs) sort of thing and uh, potential return to the moon as well so uh, you know all this is mute point now but they're fascinating to watch so hopefully we'll get a chance to see that if it's not cloudy of course (laughs) cloud oh dear I think shall we rename this cloud diary I think (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> most of the events we talked about last month, sort of, we had such a bad month, sort of, I hardly saw any. <laughs> well, hopefully if September was bad, that means all of the cloud budget has been used up. So October will be lovely and clear because that's how the weather works, right? I tell you what, can I bank with the bank you bank up then? Because I think that's good. I, I think we'll bank on that sort of thing, you <laughs> well, know. So hopefully October will be absolutely clear. Yes, exactly. Cloud bank. So uh, moving on, we October normally has two um, showers, meteor showers, um, that are, are worth observing. The Draconids, which are around about the 8th and the 9th, and the Orionids, which are 21st, 22nd. Uh, sadly, the Orionids are spoilt. The moon is full on the 20th. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much going to wash out the Orionids completely. But the good news is that on the 8th, the Draconids is at its peak and the moon is a, a thin evening crescent sort of thing. So it's in the evening sky and setting fairly early on. And the reason why this is good is that the draconids are actually what you call a circumpolar meteor shower. So they, they don't set. The radiant itself doesn't set. So it's always above the horizon. Naturally, early on, it'll be low down. It gets better during the course of the night. But we won't have the moon to spoil it. So that's good mm-hmm. news. 
The only difference, the only sad thing is that it is actually a low zenith hourly rate. And this is the theoretical rate for meteors. Uh, if they're absolutely directly above you, perfectly crystal clear skies, etc., dark skies, no light pollution, this is what you'd see. They say five. Um, and Pete Lawrence is, uh, uh, regularly reminds us that in actual fact, it's usually about a quarter of that, what we actually see naked eye. So it sounds dismal. But the draconids also occasionally have outbursts. They're difficult to predict, but in 2018, there was a really strong outburst. There was 150 meters an hour. So that is wow. really, so. the thing is, you never know. This is why it's That's... always worth watching these minor showers, because you never know. You might be the one that discovers a new outburst, you know, yeah. or you may see an outburst take place. So, you know, it's worth watching out during the course of that 8th to the 9th, that yeah. night, keeping I mean, an eye out. Even even like something like the, the more prolific meteor showers, like the Perseids or, or what have you, they're only usually about 100 ZHR. Yeah. So that's that's a lot <laughs> it 150 is amazing you know so uh, you know and we we don't get many showers that i mean there's the persids there's the geminids that you know regularly go over 100 per hour anyway and the leonids once every 33 years have an outburst mm. as such so uh, we're in between outbursts i'm afraid with the leonids we've got a bit of time yet to wait for that to happen again but as i say these they as they model meteor streams better and better they're beginning to find that uh, there are actually little patches sort of thing of dust perhaps slightly offset from the main shower sort of thing and once you've seen them once they can start modeling and, and predicting when they return mm -hmm. so uh, they are getting better at these yeah. so it's worth this is why we always say don't observe just oh. on the radiant night you know have a go a few nights before and after because you never know i mean you could be the discoverer of a new radiant a, a new outburst you know which so uh, just imagine one of the sky at night somebody reading the magazine say it was because of sky at night podcast start i podcast with <laughs> ezzy and paul that i actually discovered a new outburst you know it's not impossible that's that's the beauty about this it isn't impossible also, if, if people are, are regular meteor shower observers and they fancy having a bit more of a challenge, you can also try and make notes and, and actually record your observations. And that's one of the ways that they've been tracking out where the meteor showers are, um, the, the sort of distribution of the, the meteor showers, is because of amateur astronomers at home taking these notes. Um, so if that sounds of interest to you, I suggest you look up the uh, British Astronomical Association's website and they've got lots of details about how to get involved there. That's it, because this is one of the areas we can actually contribute as amateurs, um, because so much is being taken over by professionals, which is understandable because, you know, they are the experts, but they can't monitor meteor showers like we can. So we've got the resources, we've got the people around the world who can watch out for these things and take notes. And as long as it's recorded accurately, then, uh, you know, it can be really, really useful in modelling these streams. So that's the draconids. I say, uh, unfortunately, the orionids are washed out by the moon. You might get the odd one because sometimes you do get a bright meteor associated with the shower. So, you know, it's, it's worth keeping an eye out then. But just remember, you won't get anything like the number of meters. All the faint ones will be completely washed out uh, by the uh, moon, which is a great shame. But, you know, there are some years when the orionids are good, no moon. And this is one of those years, unfortunately, we have to put up with that, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Now, um, the next night, the 9th and the 10th in actual fact, we go back to the early evening. Hey, something reasonable, a reasonable time. And we're talking about the evening twilight. And, you know, our friend that's been around for a very long time now, quite a few months, 
good old Venus, the goddess of <laughs> the goddess of love, is still hanging on in the evening sky, and it will do because it's one of those quirks of the ecliptic and the, the path it's taken on the ecliptic, in that uh, it's actually sort of keeping pace ahead of the sun, so it's not being beaten by the sun. Mostly, outer planets gradually sink into the twilight and are disappear. Venus is one of those at the moment; its motion is keeping ahead of the encroachment of the sun, so uh, it's staying visible, and so Venus. Venus is the bright evening star at the moment, so the ninth and the tenth. On the ninth, it'll be joined by the crescent moon. So I always love these. You know, you've got the crescent moon there, Celine, hanging mm. there gracefully next to the goddess of love as well. So, uh, oh, we can wax lyrical, can't we, really, with these? Mm. But it is gorgeous to see them in the twilight sky hanging together just before they set. So you want to be about half an hour, 40 minutes max after sunset sort of thing, before, otherwise they'll get too low. So the crescent of the moon on the ninth is to the upper right of Venus. Then on the next night, Venus will have moved a little bit, but the moon will have moved quite a considerable amount to the left on the tenth. So we're well off to the left. But interestingly enough, it may give you a chance to see the star Antares. Now, Antares is one of those stars that's gradually sliding into the evening twilight sky and will be lost. And so it is getting difficult to see. But because of the position of Venus and the moon, on the 10th, in fact, the 9th and the 10th sort of thing, the 10th especially, the moon and Venus will be either side of Antares. Antares will be lower than, in fact, it's nearly level with Venus. So I would use a pair of binoculars. Find Venus first. Make sure, of course, the sun's set. You know, we always have to make sure that the sun is set with this. I don't want mm-hmm. you to sweep up the sun and sort of burn your eyeballs out. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? You mm-hmm. know, but if you use Venus as a guide and then gently sweep to the left, you might pick up a lone star, a fainter star, but that'll be Antares. And say the moon on the 10th, there'll be Venus and the moon, and then Antares forming a very shallow triangle, actually, with them as well. So it might be your last chance to see Antares. And of course, Antares is the heart of the Scorpion, the blazing orange-red star, the red supergiant star of uh, Scorpius itself. So that's in the evening sky. Nice evening one for us, Az. Yeah, so we don't have to get up. <laughs> Unless we've been working all diligently through the night, doing our reviews, observing, etc., and then we're sleeping during the day. Because um, that's what a lot of professional astronomers do. You know, they're working through the night and they sleep during the day sort of thing. Gosh, it, it plays havoc with your biorhythms, I can tell you, from my it own re- experience. It really does, <laughs> especially if you've already flown halfway around the world, so you're jet-lagged for two days, then you're on a night shift for a week, and then you're back on holiday, and then you're back in the UK on UK time. Uh, uh, not that I speak from experience. I anything. was just going to say, does this, does this sound familiar? This, this, this sounds like practical experience that you've gone through, which uh, yes. I think you have, haven't you? <laughs> Observing on, on Mauna Kea, um, which is, I think, a 12-hour time difference to the UK, and then constantly shifting. And by the end of that, when I came back, I had no idea where I was or what time it was or what was going on. My body was very confused. <laughs> Oh, shall I, up, shall, I, shall I up you on that? So I tell you what, if, if you want to do something like that, me and Pete Lawrence flew out with a certain company to see the eclipse in China. And that was quite mm. something because we literally flew out. 
had the day, literally half a day before the eclipse sort of thing, saw the eclipse the next day, and then the next day we had to fly back all the way from China. You know, it'd be nice mm. to have had a bit of time to explore a bit more, but uh, but it was fascinating as such. But it takes it out of you, doesn't it, sort of thing, mm. with all this travelling sort of thing. So uh, back to um, the, well, it's not quite the evening sky. It's late evening into the morning sky. October the 10th, the 11th. Now, Uranus. Now, Uranus will be at opposition next month, early on next month, in actual fact. So it's getting to the point whereby it's visible almost all night. So it's getting better place to view. It'll be a little bit better in November and December, I have to say, because then it moves into the evening sky properly. And that's more of a convenient time, isn't it? But I always like it when these distant planets are close to stars that are the similar sort of brightness and they're very close to them. We have an example with Uranus on October the 10th, 11th, that night. So you look through the night sort of thing. So again, stay up if you want, sort of the choice is yours. So Uranus is actually just above Omicron Arietis. Now, Uranus is magnitude 5.6 because it's close to opposition, so it's virtually at its brightest. Now, magnitude 5.6, some would class that as naked eye. Usually, they often say from a very dark sky, you can argue that magnitude 6 is the limit. You should be able to see something brighter than magnitude 6. I have to say, I've struggled. I have seen Uranus with a naked eye before I had to wear glasses, so I have managed it a few times sort of thing, but you need a blank area of sky, ideally with no other stars similar to it. So this is a bit of an oddity because there is a star similar to it. It's magnitude 5.7 Omicron Arietis. So it's a tenth of a magnitude. So the question here and the challenge I think here is, can you tell the difference between you? Can you tell that difference in a tenth of a magnitude? I used to be able to, and I'll be honest, I don't think I can do it anymore. I'm getting old, you know. <laughs> but your eyes do age. And so you have mm. to bear that in mind sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I used to be able to do tenths of magnitude. I used to do magnitude estimates and I could do it to a tenth of a magnitude. I was quite proud of that. And, you know, it helps with observations like for the BAA. So uh, this would be an interesting test because, as I say, Uranus will be directly above uh Omicron Arietis, and it will be a tenth of a magnitude difference. So you should see, uh, I would use binoculars, but you should see two stars equal brightness near enough. And the question will be, will you be able to tell which one is slightly fainter? And in theory, it should be the one below. It should be Omicron that is actually very, very slightly fainter. With any look, you might pick up a greenish tinge for Uranus as well, because that's the classic thing. We've often called it the green planet. And with good reason, because a lot of methane in the atmosphere, and that tends to give it this greenish colour. It absorbs a lot of the wavelengths, and the green is part of the wavelengths that get reflected back to us. So I have to say that it's... I I, I have suspected it in binoculars. I find it better in telescopes, the green colour. I do notice a green issue. It's a bit like Neptune being blue. It's more in a telescope that I notice the hue. But again, just see what you think, whatnot, with binoculars, or if you use a telescope, and see where, A, you can detect that difference in magnitude, and B, whether you can see the change in colour, the difference in colour between the two. Because I always think colour is interesting. It's very subjective. Everybody's Mm. vision is subtly different. So I can Mm. say something, that looks certain colour, and they can look at it and say, no, what's he got on? What's he been on? Sort of thing. But, you know, it's just down to everybody's eyes are subtly different. So that's Uranus then. I mean, it's not quite the last planet in the solar system, but, you know, it uh, is uh, there and it's quite distant. So, you know, another little goal if you've never seen Uranus. It's better when it's near a star, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, we're always looking for the moon. I mean, the moon, I always think in astronomy, if you can't find the moon, 
take up another hobby, <laughs> unless it's cloudy. I'll get, I'll, I'll let you off if it's cloudy. <laughs> if you know, it's cloudy, I'll, I'll, I'll or there's you. like a building in the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly, sort of thing. But otherwise, if you've got a clear sky and can't find the moon, you do, you need to take something else up, sort of thing, as a hobby. Because you know, this is why I like to use the moon as a guide to the other planets, uh, because it does. This is why we said it about Venus in the early evening sky. And as we get to October the thirteenth through to the fifteenth, the moon passes Saturn and Jupiter. Now. On the 13th, this is now in the evening sky because they are all past opposition sort of thing. So we're looking at sort of like Saturn is to the upper left of the moon on the 13th itself. Now, as it happens on the 13th, the moon is at first quarter. So it looks like a half-phase moon in actual fact. So you'll see the half moon and then Saturn to its upper left. Now, the next night, the moon will form a triangle with Saturn and Jupiter because Interesting enough, Saturn, Saturn and Jupiter are gradually getting further apart. Now, we had the great conjunction last year, if you remember, in December. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was clear, Ezzy. Ezzy, it was clear. We had a special event and it was clear. I was in shock. I think, I think most of the country of the astronomers were actually in shock if they got clear skies. But at that time, sort of thing, they were really close. But this gives us, again, another sense of the clockwork motion of the solar system because Jupiter is pulling away. Jupiter is a closer planet to us. So its apparent motion in the sky is a lot faster. And so Saturn is on one side of Capricornus. Jupiter now is on the other side of Capricornus and gradually getting further and further away from Saturn. So uh, so the moon on the 14th will actually lie forming a triangle. It'll be lower than both planets sort of thing, but it'll be in the centre near enough of Capricornus. And so uh, you'll get a nice conjunction there sort of thing between Saturn, Jupiter and this moon. And then to cap it off, um, Jupiter is actually sort of like quite close to two reasonably bright stars in Capricornus, Delta and uh, sort of like Gamma Capricorni. Now, uh, it's, it's directly above Gamma Capricorni, which makes it useful. It forms this triangle with them. But then on the 15th, it sort of like forms a diamond. So you've got Jupiter, the two stars, and then the moon below it as well. So you've got a nice diamond formation sort of thing. Slightly distorted, admittedly sort of thing. It's not a perfect diamond. But it's, I always like these patterns in the sky sort of thing, you know. And because the moon is moving and Jupiter is moving, you know, these patterns won't repeat. You won't get that diamond again. Um, if, as far as I know, you won't get it at all this year. Uh, again. So, uh, you know, grab it now while you actually can. So that's the moon as a great guide for us. Now, we've had Venus. It's in the evening sky, but we get Mercury, the innermost planet. But sadly, yes, you've guessed it. It's not in the evening sky at all. It's in the morning sky. But this is the best morning apparition of the year. Mercury has two good apparitions per year. Um, one in the evening sky, which is usually March or April time, and one in the morning sky. And this is the moment when we start around about mid-month, sort of thing, October the 15th. It'll be very low down. Now, the thing about the Mercury apparitions in the morning sky is it's always fainter at the start of the apparition and gets brighter through the middle and towards the end. Now, towards the end, it also suffers because it starts to get low in the sky and we have the atmospheric extinction taking place. But... Um, it's actually in the morning sky and it rises quite quickly. It gets higher and higher. And at one point, when it reaches the greatest uh, elongation west, um, which is October the 25th, it'll be 18 degrees away from the sun. But because the ecliptic is quite steep, that, that is good for us. So it means Mercury gets quite high. In fact, it rises at its best at 
two hours before the sun. So it's not often we can say that sort of thing because it's usually quite, you know, quite close to the sun. But it's still in twilight, but it will be a good apparition, but it stretches into November as well sort of thing. So, uh, you know, so this if you've ne- <clears throat> never seen the interior, inferior planet, the innermost planet of our solar system, Mercury, and you like getting up in the morning, this is the apparition to get. Otherwise, you'll have to wait for the evening and sort of like, you know, springtime next year in actual fact to see it. But I always say it's nice to see Mercury because, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, they're all friends, you know, the planets. And, and I have to say, when, they, when they've disappeared into the twilight sort of thing, I long to wait to see them come back, you know. So, you know, so uh, it's nice to get Mercury back into the uh, sky and have a good apparition so it isn't clinging to the horizon mm-hmm. um, like Venus is doing at the moment. At least Venus compensates by being bright sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, in the morning twilight sort of thing from October the 15th onwards, I would say sort of thing, you want to wait two or three days, probably October the 20th onwards through to about the, uh, well, probably the first week of November. And that's the best period for actually uh, Mercury this particular time. But, uh, yeah, it is a nice morning apparition. And so if you like walking the dog, I mean, a lot of people do. They get up and do an early morning stretch sort of thing, a stroll. Um, make sure you look towards the east-southeast, and you might see a little star there on the horizon sort of thing, you know. And if it isn't a jet plane gl- in a glint of light, uh, it yeah, will be Mercury, because Mercury will be up in the morning sky. So, uh, yes, it'll be a welcome return. And I say this one's, I mean, a, a few weeks up. Technically, if you go from... Um, it's first, if you do get it on the 15th, it's visible until about November the 14th. So you've nearly got potentially a month to observe it. But I say it's round about towards the end of October, 20th onwards through to the first week of November, that it's actually at its best to observe. So there we are. So that's, uh, that's Mercury. So Mercury is, you know, it's often considered, because it's in twilight, oh, you don't often see it, but actually it's naked eye. You know, it is a naked eye planet. And when you spot it, you think, how could I have missed that? You know, so when you can see it, you know, it is quite bright. But on October the 16th, this is this is a challenge. This is a challenge for you. Because it's, again, it's one of those things, it's just sort of in the morning sky, sort of to try, try for this. But you remember the Rosetta mission. Now, you wrote a lot about the Rosetta mission, didn't you? I uh, did. So, Desi. So, uh, I mean, it was all the rage just a few years ago, sort of thing, with little land of Philae as well, sort of thing. Well, it went to the comet, Churimov Gerasimenko. I always never know whether I've pronounced that right, but they, they are. That's my girl, otherwise known as Comet 67P. That's a lot easier to say, isn't it? But the comet is returning. Now, it's going to be faint. It's about estimated to be magnitude 10. But the thing that makes this interesting is it right next to Messier 35, the open cluster in Gemini. In fact, it's the feet of Castor. So if you're into faint comet sort of thing in conjunction with an interesting deep sky object, then this is the time to get it. And I've already got a few friends in September who have actually imaged the comet already. So I know images are going to be able to get that. Uh, being magnitude 10, yes, it would need a reasonable sized telescope to pick it out, but it'll be fascinating to see this distant interloper amongst the stars or close to the edge of Messier 35 in Gemini as well. So it is a bit of a challenge, but we like to give a few challenges. Don't we? we shouldn't make it too easy every month. Good grief. <laughs> yeah, you know. I know. There's, <laughs> a, there's a lot of astronomers, uh, professional astronomers as well, who are very happy that, that uh, 67P is, is coming back in because uh, it gets the, lets them have a second look at it. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether there's any chance of, I don't don't think there's any chance of communicating with Rosetta. I think it's dead, isn't it? It's on the yeah, surface now of the comet. But, uh, but it would have been great if they'd have got a little bleep because something's <laughs> acting up and there's something sparking and it makes a connection with a little bleep saying, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it was landed on the surface of the comet and spacecraft don't tend to do tell too well when you leave them on a massive lump of ice in deep space for for six and a half years. Exactly, throwing out dust and all sorts of things from it as well. I should think it's pretty well scoured by now as well. But if anybody at home is is getting particularly interested about... uh, Churyumov Gerasimenko and, and wants to learn a bit more about it, then I, I suggest looking out for the November issue when it comes back. Um, not not that I'm I'm giving any spoilers here, but we might have something <laughs> in there. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling there might be something, sort of thing. Because it, it is now a famous comet. You know, Absolutely. To have had a, a, a spacecraft orbited and have a little lander as well. You know, yeah. that was quite an achievement. Well done, ESA, for doing that. So we're getting towards the end of the month now. On October the 21st sort of thing, we actually have an interesting situation whereby, again, if you've not seen Uranus and you didn't find Uranus before when it was above Omicron Arietus, the moon, which is full on the 20th, the next morning, so, okay, it's a pretty full moon, lies directly below Uranus. So, you know, that helps. And it's between Uranus and Mu Seti sort of thing, which I was, I don't know, Mm -hmm. there seems to be something about that star Mu Seti that I, I featured a lot in my own books as such when I'm doing it. It's very, because I think it's because Uranus is gradually coasting above that particular star. So it's become, it's become quite well known because we keep revisiting the same area of the sky. And it's an easy way to home in on Uranus uh, by using this naked eye star sort of thing in the head of Cetus. On the 22nd, the moon is then sort of to the lower right of the Pleiades. So this is Messier 45. I mean, you know, the moonlight is bright, but you should see this faint little sparkly cluster of stars. And of course, binoculars will show it mm. up really well. And I always like it because you have a sequence then. So we're on the 21st next to Uranus, below Uranus. On the 22nd, sort of forming to the lower right of the Pleiades. On the 23rd, it's sort of forming a very shallow triangle, actually, with Aldebaran. Now, that is the red eye of the bull sort of thing, you know, although I think it looks more orange, <laughs> personally, you know. But uh, you've know, got the moon there, the Pleiades and Aldebaran. And, of course, Aldebaran is part of the Hyades, the uh, cluster of stars there, which is naked eye and looks more like a triangle. Of course, we know that Aldebaran is not actually a true member. It's half the distance, in fact, so it's not a true member at all. And then after that, the next night, Fern added, I mean, it's up to you, sort of, but the moon forms a bit of a triangle with the two horns of the bull, uh, Alnath and Zeta Tauri sort of thing. So oh, it's a nice little sequence where you can follow the moon if you get clear nights on successive nights. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, get Cloud Watch UK out again. Now, on the 28th, we have a bit of a jump because there isn't that many events after that. But on the 28th, I was like Lionel, so don't know about you. But when we get sort of like a lineup of celestial objects, and in this particular case, the moon, again, is in the morning sky, and as it happens, it's getting close to last quarter. And uh, it's actually directly below and in lineup with Castor and Pollux in Gemini, and they're two bright stars, the twins of Gemini itself. So you really want to be looking from midnight on the 20th. So that's the night of the 27th into the 28th to actually see that, and it'll form a lineup sort of thing. It also forms a bit of a sort of like diamond, because you've 
course, you've got Kappa and uh, you've got uh, Pollux. You've got the moon. And I forget the other star there. I think it's Tau or Eta, uh, Geminorum. But uh, so, uh, you know, I always forget that middle one because we, we not hardly ever discuss it. It's, it's one of those stars whereby you point it out and people say, is that one interesting? You say, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to be honest. I know. I know. Just Spectroscopically, they would be interesting, but uh, visually, more interesting they're a dot. Than <laughs> they're a dot. Come on, let's face it, the dots. It's only when they're doubles or triples that they get interesting, really, or variables as such. But no, it's, it's always nice to watch this. And I say, it'll be a lineup with Castor and Pollux as well. So uh, we are getting towards the end of the month, but we started the month with Eta Leonis and the actual occultation. Now, if an event occurs at the beginning of the month, because of the lunar month, because of the time it takes the moon to go around the Earth and come back to the same place, that is where we get month from, of course. And so you find that if they're there on the 1st or 2nd or 3rd, there's a good chance on the 29th, 30th and 31st of a month, they'll be in a similar area. And so on the 30th to the 31st, we actually have the um, thick crescent moon to the right of Eta this time, to the right, actually, of the sickle of Leo, and to the right, actually, upper right of Regulus. And then on the 31st, it's almost level with Regulus on the other side, on the left-hand side, to finish the month off. So it's always interesting when you get them at the beginning of the month, at the end of the month, you, always, you feel like you're getting two bites of the cherry. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's not, this time we don't get an occultation though, sort of thing. If you get an occultation in one time, you won't, by definition, get an occultation the next time. The orbital period of the moon just doesn't work like that as such. But always mm-hmm. find, nah, it's nice when it starts and ends with the same patch of sky, sort of. We feel as though we've done a complete circuit, don't we? And in fact, would you believe it? We have. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. That's the yeah. main events, really, for the actual month itself. A lot to look out for. And you might also be able to get a glimpse of the comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko on the 16th of October, uh, which will be passing close by to M35 as it makes its way towards perihelion. Then on the 22nd, you unfortunately won't be able to see the Orionids meteor shower too well. You might be able to see one or two, but you could get to see the Pleiades and the moon passing by the Pleiades um, on the 22nd. Then on the 28th, we have a nice stellar lineup as the moon makes a line with Castor and Pollux. So whatever you want to, to get a look at, whether it's it's stars or solar system objects, uh, there's loads to see in the night sky this month. If you want to find out even more spectacular sights that will be gracing the night sky this month, then be sure to pick up a copy of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have a 16-page pull-out sky guide with a full overview of everything that's worth looking up for in October 2021. Whether you like to look at the moon, the planets, or the deep sky, whether you use binoculars, telescopes, or neither, our sky guide has got you covered, with detailed star charts to help you track your way across the night sky. So thank you very much, Paul, for telling us all about that. So hopefully some of you listening at home will be able to get out there and observe something great this month. So from all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. 